The reason that Easter is such a big deal to us and the reason Easter is such a big deal to church uh, and the reason we're kind of all here this morning celebrating Easter uh, is because of, of the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but, but <clears throat> our faith, Christianity, the church, it's not founded on a book. It's not founded on a belief. It's founded on an event an event that occurred about 2,000 years ago, and it completely transformed history. That's why over 2,000 years later, all across the world, millions of people are gathering to talk about what Jesus did on that cross and what he did even better than that after that cross in the grave. So we say here, and you'll hear us say over and over again, that it's the resurrection of Jesus. It is the resurrection of Jesus that is kind of the fundamental. It, it, it is the pinnacle. It is what we built our faith on. It's what our faith is built on. It's not, it's not a belief system. It's not a book. It's an event that happened 2,000 years ago. And it's an event that we're still celebrating today. It's an event that launched Christianity, an event that launched the church. And the incredible thing about this event that is kind of before the resurrection, there were no Christians. So we kind of, we talk to our, about ourselves as Christians or Christ followers. Before the resurrection, there were no Christ followers. There were no Christians. Because the people who even followed Jesus, like up until his death, when he died, they, they, they believed what we kind of believe about dead people, right? That, that when someone dies, they tend to stay dead, right? They, they tend to stay dead. So all the people who kind of followed Jesus, all the people who believed Jesus, all the people who, who listened to the, his incredible teachings, when he died, they expected him to stay dead. There were no Christians at that point. That's why you hear us say every Easter service, and you'll hear me say time and time again, that on Easter Sunday, when they looked into that, that tomb, nobody was expecting nobody. Nobody was expecting nobody. They were expecting to see a dead person. They were expecting to see a, a, a carcass. They were expecting to see the body of the person, their teacher, their rabbi, the person they followed around. But when it came to that Easter Sunday morning and they peered into that tomb and it was empty, nobody there was expecting nobody at all. They had all kind of given up faith. Even the people that loved him, even the people that followed him, you may have heard of the 12 disciples, his mother Mary, they all expected Jesus to stay dead like every dead person before him would. <clears throat> but the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul kind of, he, he kind of revolutionized what we believe and how we believe. He, he did more for Christianity than maybe any other person except for our Savior Jesus. And the Apostle Paul in his book to the, uh, this, this Corinthian church, he writes something so unique and so significant. We're going to spend a lot of time kind of looking through these scriptures and what it means for us. But here's what he says. And this is so extremely important and extremely relevant to our faith and to every single one of us. He says this, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. And we talk about the gospel a lot. We always, you hear us talk and refer to the gospel. He's about to tell them what the gospel is. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Or in other words, this is like the most important thing. This is of utmost importance to you, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried. Because that's what dead people do when, you know, when they die. We tend to bury them. That he was raised on the third day. And how do we know that? Because the scriptures told us he would. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, the apostle Peter. And then to the twelve. And then after that, according to the Apostle Paul, after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. And then according to the Apostle Paul, most of whom are still living. And this is an incredible way for Paul to say, hey, basically fact check me. 
Like, I'm telling you all this, but if you don't believe me, take a trip to Jerusalem, come and meet the people that spent time with Jesus, that listened to him teach on the hillside, that watched him carry his cross, that watched him die, that watched him be, be uh, buried in the tomb, and then a few days later peered into the empty tomb and saw a risen Jesus. If you don't believe me what I'm saying, come and fact check me because the people that told me are still alive living in Jerusalem. And then he says something that I find really unique. It's something we don't refer to often, but in, in the first century church, and really in all the New Testament, he, they have this way of talking about people who have died. He says this, though some of them, though some of the people who have seen Jesus, they have fallen asleep. They have fallen asleep. Do you know why the New Testament people, the New Testament believers, continually refer to people who have died, who have passed away, as simply fallen asleep? What do fallen asleep people do? Eventually they wake up. You see, they had such extraordinary confidence in the resurrection that Jesus had and the resurrection that Jesus promised to them that they wouldn't refer to people who had died, for people who, who, who had horrible deaths. They wouldn't refer to them as being dead. They would simply refer to them as falling asleep because they knew one day they would see their friends, they would see their family, they would see their loved ones again. That's how much extraordinary confidence they had in the resurrection. Wouldn't you like to have that? That kind of confidence that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I won't even refer to my father who died as a dead person, but as somebody who's simply fallen asleep because one day I will get to see him again. And then he goes on. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus, and then to the apostles. Now, since the resurrection is the thing, since everything kind of hinges on the resurrection, our faith, Christianity, the church, we're going to kind of look and dive into what the resurrection is. Here's what I want to do, and I kind of want to address three people today. I want to talk to three groups of people. The first one is this. For people that believe and sometimes wonder, maybe you're like me, you believe, but occasionally you just find yourself asking, is all of this real? Like, can this really be believed? Like, did Jesus really live? Did he really die? Like, I know I've been taught this, and I've been in church for years and years, and my mom told me, my grandma told me, and I went to Sunday school, but, but occasionally, in the midst of all my belief, I find myself wondering, is all of this real? For you, I want you to, I want you to leave today with extraordinary confidence that yes, this is real, that yes, you can believe. And then for those of you that, that wonder, how could anyone in the 21st century believe all of this nonsense, believe all of this craziness? Like, like haven't we progressed enough? Haven't we evolved enough? Why would anyone still believe all of these crazy things that are just a bunch of like random Christians, you know, 70 or 80 years after Jesus kind of lived, if Jesus was even real, after he kind of lived, they kind of passed these, these oral traditions around. Like, why would anyone still believe with all of the technology, with all of the science, with, with everything backing up, why would anyone still believe and these kind of things. Like people don't raise from the dead. People don't come back to life. That's sci-fi. That's movies. And that's awesome. But that's not, that's not reality. And then for those of you who, who maybe you, you believe, maybe you went to Sunday school and you believed and you went to church, but you find yourself wondering, is it ever possible to believe again? I, I believed when I was young. I believed when I was a teenager. I believed when I was an adult. You know, I went to church. I went to youth camp. I got the T-shirt. I, I put my, you know, my, my name down, and, and I signed the card, and, and I did all those things. And then I, I went to college, or I went to graduate school, and people began to ask me some really difficult questions that I couldn't find answers to in my faith. Or someone gave me a book, and they challenged me to read it, and it just kind of, kind of undermined some of what I believed. And, and now I find myself wondering, can I ever believe it again? Like, is it really true? And if it is true, can I ever possibly believe that again? For you, I want to extend you an invitation. At the end of today, my hope is that you would believe again. That you would believe again. And that you would have that extraordinary confidence to know that there is something unique about what we're doing here this morning. 
And it isn't celebrating a belief system. It isn't because we like to just get people together once a year. It's because something happened 2,000 years ago and it forever changed the course of history. It changed my life and my guess is in some way it changed your life as well. You see, the primary argument against what we're going to talk about this morning, the primary argument against Christianity, and you may know this, you may not know this, but when, but when skeptics or atheists or, or when people who want to disprove or disbelieve the Bible, the primary argument against Christianity is the resurrection. It's, it's not the Bible. It's not did Jesus live. It's not the Apostle Paul and, and any of the other disciples. The really, the primary argument against what we're doing here this morning is the resurrection. Is the resurrection real? Could the resurrection have possibly happened? Like, dead people don't come back to life. So really, could we ever have any kind of faith in this thing, in this, this resurrection, in this really incredible kind of maybe fabricated story that people made up about Jesus, that maybe there was just this group of people that got together, and they wanted to tell the story about this really great teacher, Jesus. And over years and years and years, the story just kind of, kind of went really far and really long, and it was stretched, and it started to say things that never really happened. You see, that basically, all of our, our written accounts, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of our written accounts, they are far too removed from the actual events to be accurate accounts of these actual events. That so much time had passed from the time of the resurrection to the time when it was actually documented, that so much time had passed between that, that there was no possible way that we have an accurate account of these actual events that happened in history. That the primary argument against what we believe and what we're doing here this morning isn't that Jesus was a real person. It's that maybe he didn't really come back to life. That maybe something incredible happened, but, but there was so much time between that event and all the time away that it was written, that things kind of, kind of got, got twisted. They kind of got um, spiraled out of control. And maybe it began to say something that didn't actually happen. These classic arguments against the, res against the resurrection is basically to say that there is so much time between what we call the resurrection and when it was actually documented that there's no actual factual way to prove that it happened. Today, I want to explain why we can have extraordinary confidence in the resurrection of Jesus. Are you ready? Remember I told you you have to put your thinking caps on? You need to put your thinking caps on. You need to get your brain. Don't check it in at the door. I want you to roll with me today. We're going to have an interesting talk as we kind of talk to how we can know that the resurrection is real. And it all comes down to one person, one person that we talk about a lot, one person that you are probably familiar with, and that's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, he was a real person that lived in the first century. And you may not know this, but no scholar... It doesn't matter if they believe in Christianity or they don't believe in Christianity. No scholar would say that the Apostle Paul isn't a real person. It is documented fact that he was real, that he lived in the first century, and that he did more for Christianity than anyone else aside from the founder of Christianity, Jesus. That he did more for what we do and what we believe and what we teach and how we kind of build our, our, our faith and our fundamental beliefs. The Apostle Paul did more for that than anyone else. No one's willing to argue that. Everyone can agree. Every scholar can agree. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or an agnostic. It doesn't matter if you spent your whole life trying to disprove Christianity. No one would, would disagree with this statement that the Apostle Paul is a real person who really lived in the first century and who really did something absolutely incredible for Christianity. You'll not find a, a, a scholar anywhere who disagrees with that. The Apostle Paul also wrote some books for the Bible. He wrote, uh, there's 13 of his letters. They're not really books. They're letters that he wrote to other people in other churches. 13 of them that kind of made it into our New Testament. But some people disagree with that statement and say maybe there's not 13. Maybe there's only like six. Maybe like, like seven of those weren't actually written by him. That seven of those books 
uh, were, or rather, rather six of those books, are what we would call pseudepigrapha. You may have heard that term before. It's a really big word. It took me a long time to practice saying that. <clears throat> pseudepigrapha. It's basically a term that is used to describe that uh, something is written by someone who's not the person it's claimed to be written by. So basically, and this happened on the first, second, third century, as a matter of fact, we still see this happening today in, in, in our culture, in our world, that somebody writes something and they want it to be read, so they attach someone else's name to it. Hey, this was written by the Apostle Paul, and they go to the library and they sell it because people want to read what really important people or really famous people have to say. So some people believe that maybe six of his, his 13 letters, his 13 books, aren't really written by Paul. But, but the seven that we have, we would call these the undisputed letters of Paul. These are undisputed. These were actually written. Everyone across the world believes these were actually written by the Apostle Paul. And these books are stated here. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Now, we read from 1 Corinthians just a few minutes ago. That is an undisputed letter. That Paul, who is a real person who lived in the first century, actually wrote to a group of Christians that he knew in this, this little province of Corinth. This is undisputed. And here's what we, what we need to understand. And we're going to kind of j- jump back in, in time a little, bit, a little bit for this. This book of 1 Corinthians was written in 55 AD, like, like the original 55 AD. When we talk in these first dates, we're not talking about like 1950s. This is where you need your thinking caps to roll with me. This is like the original 50 to 55 AD. Paul wrote this book, 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> What's incredible about this, <clears throat> and this is where we're going to start showing our timeline. And at first, I, I want to say this just to kind of prep everyone for this. Scholars believe Jesus is a real person. I don't know if you know that. You may, depending on when you went to school, somebody may have taught you years ago, if you went to school years and years ago, that Jesus wasn't a real person, that he was kind of a figment of someone's imagination. Well, that kind of thinking has come and gone. Every scholar, whether, you, whether they believe in the, in the New Testament or Christianity or this faith or not, they all kind of agree that Jesus is an actual historical figure, that he lived on the earth, that he claimed to be a rabbi, he claimed to do some incredible things. It's documented that he actually lived and that he actually died in 30 or 32 AD. If you could put that next timeline up for us. Around 30 or 32 AD is the date of Jesus' death, the date of his resurrection. That's, that's where this happened, around 30 or 32 AD. And we know, as we just told you, that Paul, who was a real person, who wrote a real letter to a real group of people, that happened in 55 AD. So there's about, about 20 years between this event and this occurrence that we just read about, where Paul actually talks about the resurrection. We're not talking hundreds of years. We're not talking 50 years. We're talking about 20 years from the occurrence of the resurrection to when when Paul talks about the resurrection. And what's really incredible with this is that this isn't the first time Paul talked about it. You see, Paul was kind of this missionary. He'd go on these journeys, and he's actually talking to them in the past tense. When he, when he says, we're going to look at this, uh, the scripture again, he's actually talking to them about things that he already taught them when he was there visiting with them. And this happened around 50 A.D. Around 50 A.D., Paul took this incredible missionary journey, and he began to travel around and, and tell these people in Corinth about this incredible thing that happened with this man named Jesus. We're going to look at the text one more time, and I want to put this little spin on it for you. As of how we can see how Paul actually talks to them about something that he already talked to them about previously. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you, he's reminding them of what he taught them when he was with them. He's reminding them of the things that he kind of taught them and he, he, uh, he brought to them when he was with them the first time. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. He's reminding them of what he taught them, which you received 
and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, and this gets a little confusing, Paul's now saying, I've given to you something that was given to me from someone else, and now I'm reminding you of that thing that I gave to you in this letter. It's a little hard to follow. It's a little confusing. Paul's essentially saying this. Somebody got something, and they gave it to me. And then when I was with you, I gave it to you. And now I'm writing you five years later to remind you of that thing that I got from somebody else that I already gave to you. And he's basically saying all of this to say, there's some evidence to this. There's some proof to this. There's more to this than just me kind of making up a story that somebody saw something, that somebody was with Jesus, that somebody heard his teachings, that somebody watched him die, that somebody talked to him afterwards, and then they passed that on to me, and I brought it to you. You can have confidence in this. I'm not some crazy dude walking around the Mediterranean room making up these fabricated stories. There is evidence to what I'm bringing you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, as of the most important thing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried. You need to know this. No one disputes that Christ was a real person or that he died. No one disputes that he was buried. No one does. No one argues that Jesus was a real person. And no one argues that the Romans crucified him. All scholars kind of believe, yeah, he was a good person. He was alive. He taught. And then he got in this tussle with the Romans, and the Romans tend to do some really horrible things when people tussle with them. So there is of no doubt that Jesus was crucified the way the scriptures tell us he was crucified. And there's of no doubt that they then removed the body and they put it in the tomb. But then Paul begins to speak about the very thing that so many people, this classic argument, come against Christianity with, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, if you've been kind of paying attention and rolling with the dates for us, you, you might be saying to yourself, wait, wait a minute, Paul. So Paul wrote the book in 55 AD. So you wrote this letter to 55 AD, Christ died in 30 or 32, but you're writing the book five years after you were there with us. So this actually happened, you were actually with us when you told us the first time in like 50 AD. Like that's, that's closer to the resurrection. That's actually less than 20 years out. So, so we're not even 20 years out anymore, about 15 years out. Paul's talking about this incredible event, about this incredible resurrection. Something unique, something incredible happened. And it's much closer than 50 or 100 or hundreds of years. It's much closer than, than even when our whole Bible was kind of put together. This isn't a Bible says talk. This isn't because this is before the Bible. Our Bible, as we know, with all those pages and the, the leather and the cardboard and put together and it looks really nice on your, your nightstand, that didn't come about until about 300 years after that event. But Paul, about 15 to 18 years after that event, he's writing letters to people. He's traveling around the Mediterranean Rim, and he's talking about this incredible thing that happened, that Jesus died for our sins and that he rose again. So Paul writes about Jesus rising from the dead after he had told this group that, he, that they had risen from the dead. He told them in 50 AD, or yeah, in 50 AD, and then in about 55 AD, uh, he writes the letter to him. <clears throat> now, in the year 44 AD, he went to visit another group of people, and this is um, in the area of Cyprus. He kind of traveled around the Mediterranean Rim, and in, in this uh, area of Cyprus, he begins to talk to these people about this. So this even happens before he goes to the Corinthians. He begins to tell even people before that. This isn't the first time that Paul's traveled around. This isn't the first time. Paul took an earlier journey. He got on a boat. He went around the Mediterranean basin. He found a place, and he planted a church, much like we did here about a year and a half ago. And he began to write to these people and talk to them about the same thing, that you can have uh, this extraordinary confidence in who Jesus is and what happened. And this is now what? About 15 years, 13 years 
after the events of what happened. Paul goes on and he says this, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the other 12 disciples. So he's, he's here, and this is like 12 years after the crucifixion. Paul's claiming that Jesus appeared to Peter and to the other, other apostles. That's just 12 years after the crucifixion. Not 20, not 30, not 40, not 50. And how did Paul know that Peter believed that Jesus rose from the dead? He tells us that. He tells that from another story. And this is from that other book that I was telling you about. This is from the book of Galatians. In Galatians, Paul did the same thing. He kind of traveled around another undisputed book. He traveled around the, the, the Mediterranean Rim, planted a church in the city of Galatia, and he begins to tell them. He actually wrote this later on, but he went to Galatia before he ever went to Corinth, and he talked to them about Jesus and about these events that happened. So we're going to take a minute, and we're going to look at what Paul says. Now, if you're a Christian in the first century, and you had the opportunity to spend some time with somebody who claimed to have been with Jesus, you would have done that, wouldn't you? Like if somebody said to you, hey, like I know you kind of believe Jesus. I know you kind of believe in this whole resurrection thing, but, but I, I haven't met him. But if you were just to travel like an hour away, you could go have lunch with a guy who actually lived with Jesus and talked with Jesus and then saw his res- res- resurrected body. Would you go? Of course. Like that's amazing. Like I may not have a chance to, meet, to physically meet Jesus right now, but if I could meet with somebody who walked and who talked with him, who was there when he was crucified on the cross, who peered into the empty tomb and thought that the body was stolen, nobody went into the empty tomb saying, saying of course he's not here. They're all thinking, where's the body? Where's the body? We've got to find the body. If you had an opportunity to meet with that person who then turned around and saw their risen Savior, their risen teacher, and had lunch with him, wouldn't you jump at that opportunity? So the Apostle Paul is saying, here's what I did. I, I didn't get to meet Jesus. I met Jesus after he had kind of like risen from the dead and went back to heaven. I, I, that's when I converted. So I didn't have a chance to meet with him, but I heard of a guy who did. I heard of this guy, Peter. So here's what I did. After I converted, I went to go meet with Peter. I wanted to talk to somebody who got to talk with Jesus. I wanted to get to know what it was like to know Jesus and to be with him. I wanted to know if all these things I'd heard about were actually true. And Paul does what any of us would have done. He gets on a boat or gets on a horse, <clears throat> and he travels around to meet this man, Peter. He says this of his, of his uh, conversation. He says, then after three years, so he's been converted for three years now, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter. I stayed with him, and now look at this detail he's given us, all to prove what he said is true, what he said is accurate, what he said could be evidenced. For 15 days, while I was there, I saw no, none of the other apostles, only, and he pays special attention to this person, only James, the Lord's brother. And what's amazing about that is what he's indicating is, I met James, James who didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was alive. But after the resurrection, he's kind of indicating, now James believes. Now after the resurrection, the brother of Jesus believes that his brother was the son of God. What would your brother have to do to you to convince you that he's the son of God? I mean, that's a pretty big, big statement, isn't it? To believe that my brother is the son of God, the rescuer, the savior of the world. That's James. So the apostle Paul believed that James now believes in Jesus as his brother. So we're going to go back to the timeline. And this is where things get really interesting for us. This is when we know Jesus died. We know that Paul wrote the book of Corinthians there after he went to visit with the Corinthians in about 50 to 52 AD. We know that uh, in, in about 44 AD, he, he, uh, he traveled around again to that village of Cyprus. And then in 40 AD, he, wrote, he went to Galatia. Now, he wrote about this in 57 AD, but he actually visited Galatia then. And that's about, about what? I mean, I'm not that great at math, but that's about eight years? 
Right? You guys are good at math, hopefully. Any math teachers? That's about 10 to 8 years. So about 10 to 8 years after the resurrection of Jesus, enough people had believed, enough people had, had, have actually like bought into the fact that Jesus is who he said he was, that it's still being passed around. This is, we're not talking like hundreds and hundreds of years later. We're not talking that the story had been twisted through all of this oral transmission, that, that, that it kind of was one way, and as the story kind of went on, and, and these people told this people, and this people told this people, and this generation told this generation, that the story kind of, kind of twisted. It, there wasn't enough time for that. That takes hundreds and hundreds of years. We're talking eight years Eight years after the resurrection of Jesus, there are people all over the Mediterranean Rim who believe in Jesus and believe in the resurrection. It wasn't a fabricated story. It wasn't made up. It didn't get twisted over time. There is evidence. There is actual documented evidence that I've just walked through that about eight years after the resurrection, people believed who Jesus was. And it gets even better than that. About five years after the resurrection, Five years after the resurrection, the Apostle Paul becomes a follower of Jesus. That's five years after the resurrection. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus died and came back to life. That is not enough time for someone to twist a story for us to believe in. See, maybe perhaps what Paul's trying to prove with all of this is that there is overwhelming evidence that the claims that Jesus made, that the things that Jesus performed are actually history, that these are actual events with actual people. This isn't a fabricated story. This isn't made up by some good folklore because we wanted to start our own weird religious sector group. This is documented historical evidence that Paul's giving us, that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did what he said he would do, and now he believes it five years after the event occurs. There isn't a secular or a, or a, a, a non-believing scholar that would argue against Paul, that would argue that Paul isn't a real person, that Paul didn't live in the first century, that Paul didn't do these amazing things for Christianity. There isn't a scholar who would argue that. And this brilliant man, five years after the resurrection of Jesus, converts to Christianity and begins to tell everyone else that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. You see, the problem with all of this, the problem with, with, with this classical argument against the resurrection, it isn't Matthew, it isn't Mark, it isn't Luke. You'll have, hear people debate all the time, but we don't know when those things were written, and they were written long after Paul kind of wrote his stuff. It isn't we, uh, John, like I know John was close, but did John even write his book? And who was John, and when did John write it? The problem with this classic argument is this, the Apostle Paul. You cannot get around the Apostle Paul. This man was brilliant. He actually lived, and he did some incredible things. But there's more to the story. There's always more, isn't there? You see, now the part that you probably never heard of, and again, I'm sure you, know, you guys don't geek out over this stuff like I do, but if you don't believe me on this, Google it. Google can be your friend. You can research it. I offer you, like, like Paul offered them, fact check me. Prove me to be wrong if you think you can prove me to be wrong. That as Paul's kind of walking through this teaching to the Corinthians and he's beginning to tell them about the gospel, that he quotes from something that we don't often refer to anymore, but he quotes from something that we would call a creed. A creed. A, a, a creed is just a, a, fancy, a fancy way of saying this. A, a creed is a carefully crafted, usually very memorable series of statements that were used <clears throat> to transmit important information, especially when it came to religious things. You see, in the first century, people could barely read and write. 
If you went into a big city, you might find like 12 to 15% of people that could actually read and write. But if you went uh, outside of the big city, into small villages, there was almost no one. Almost nobody could read and write. So how do we transfer information? How do I begin to tell them of these incredible things that happened? How do I begin to tell them of this awesome thing that happened with Jesus? How do I transfer important information? They would do it with poems, with songs, or with creeds a way to kind of put information in, in these small, simple, memorable statements so you don't forget it. And whether you, you know it now or not, there's actually a creed that you kind of know. We all kind of learned it as a child. And you, you, may, you may not believe me at first, but, but here's how it goes. You ready? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. You guys know the rest? Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Now, why would somebody put the alphabet in that order and to that kind of cadence? To teach children who don't know how to read and write. Because you won't forget it. And then we kind of attach that ending on, right? Now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have a PhD. Now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have a PhD. Now I know my ABCs, soon I'll have a PhD. And my guess is you'll never forget that. I said it three times to you, and that will stay with you for the rest of your life. It'll always be that little joke. Soon they'll have a PhD. Soon I'll you know my kids. They're going to be brilliant someday. I know they can't rub two rocks together, but soon they're going to have a PhD. You see, that's exactly what they did with these religious things. They would, they would take these, these like complex ideas and they would break, break them down to these really simple statements that you couldn't forget and they would put it to cadence. They would put it to almost a rhythm so that anybody could know it, whether you knew how to read, whether you knew how to write. And that's what they did with this. Now, I'm going to take what Paul said about the gospel in his verses. And I'm going to tweak it a little bit because we're not sure if this original creed was written in Aramaic or if it was written in Greek. But as we kind of write it in English, I'm just going to take a few of the words and and put them in, and you can, you'll kind of hear the cadence as we go through it. So here's what the creed would look like if it was written originally in English. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried, and he rose from the dead and was seen. And my guess is if I covered the screen, all of you could quote that back to me because you can kind of hear the cadence. You can kind of hear the rhythm. It's easy to remember. It's easy to look at that just a few times and never forget it. Christ died for our sins and was buried, and he was raised from the dead and was seen. You won't forget it. That's what creeds did. And Paul, this amazing thing, Paul's writing this in his letter to a group of Christians that he already taught them about, right? He, he went there in 55 or in 50, wrote the letter in 55, but he wrote them something that he actually learned way before it made it into that book. The gospel, the message, the creed, it had traveled around through all of these Christian circles and Paul knew it years before it ever made it into his writing. All of that is to prove that there is this overwhelming evidence that the resurrection of Jesus isn't some made-up fairy tale, isn't some made-up story that Christians get excited about. It is an event that happened, an event that changed the course of history, an event that changed my life, an event that changed your life. It is documented evidence that the resurrection was already so widely accepted when Paul began to write his letter that it had been summarized in this creed. Does all of this prove that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be? No. Does all of this prove that Jesus rose from the dead? 
Nope. But here's what I don't want you to miss, and here's why I need you to tune into this. Paul's letter is evidence that the people in Jerusalem who saw Jesus believe, who saw Jesus, rather, believe that he died and rose from the dead. You can't get around it. Paul's letter is strong evidence that when he began to write this, that there were people in Jerusalem who actually believed who Jesus was and believed that he died and believed that he rose again. Paul's letter is also an evidence of this. Paul's letter proves that the resurrection was not a product of decades of oral transmission. It wasn't the product of, of so-and-so telling so-and-so, telling so-and-so, and, and, and as it went on and went on, the stories got, just got extravagant, and they began to elaborate. It became something it was never intended to be. Paul's letter proves that it is what it is. Paul's letter proves that it didn't take like 100 years or 150 years or 200 or 300 years, but simply 50 years after the resurrection, it could be believed. Because of this, Paul's letter also proves in the resurrection, or that the belief in the resurrection was documented while eyewitnesses were still eyewitnessing. That it didn't happen years and years after and all of the people had passed away and, and, and you couldn't find somebody who was actually there. Paul wrote his letter when the people who were there actually still were there. And if you didn't believe what Paul said, you could go to the original source and get the original story and document it and question it and fact-check it. You see, this proves that the resurrection was documented while eyewitnesses were still alive. And this validated his belief. This validated his belief. You see, no one would ever accuse the Apostle Paul of being a liar. No one. No, no scholar has ever accused the Apostle Paul of being a liar. No one would fabricate it and make it up because Paul lived such a, a, a strict life. Paul lived such a, a committed life. Another thing no, no, no scholar would ever accuse Paul of, they would never accuse him of being crazy. And here's why. Because his life validated his belief. His life validated his belief. When Paul converted and became a Christian, he did the most unthinkable thing imaginable. He left his former life. He, he was probably a Pharisee, a well-sought-out man, a well-respected man. He had wealth. He had family. He had position. He had power. He left all of that behind him. And here's what he did. He got on a boat, and he began to travel around to all these nations and to all these cities and to tell people that Jesus Christ is a real person, that he died and was buried, and that he rose again and was seen. He went to the Jews, and this was like kind of unthinkable to say, to the synagogues, and he began to tell the Jews, you crucified the man who came to save you. And what did the Jews do? They ran him out of the synagogues, sometimes leaving him for dead. And if it wasn't, that wasn't bad enough, like Paul wasn't enough of a glutton for punishment, then he got on a boat and he went out to the Gentiles. He said, hey, you Gentiles, here's what Jesus did for you. You got this, I have this incredible story. God sent a Jew to save you. And the Gentiles laughed, like, that's ridiculous. Who's a Jew? Why? Like, a Jew would never, could never. And they would stone him. And they would beat him, and they'd run him out of cities, and they'd lock him up in prisons. He was shipwrecked. Times he was left for dead. And Paul would get up, and he would dust himself off, and he would keep going. You see, you couldn't accuse Paul of being crazy because his life validated his belief. He believed that Jesus really did live, die, come back to life, and was seen again. See, that is incredible. That is powerful. There is evidence to believe that Jesus who is who he says he was and that Jesus 
would do or has done what he said he would do. You see, all of this gives evidence to the fact that the Bible did not create Christianity. Paul's book gives evidence to the fact that Christianity did not create Christianity. It proves, we've been saying from the beginning, that the resurrection created Christianity. That all of what we believe isn't founded on a book, it's not founded on a group of people (coughs) that begin to twist and begin to tell some elaborate story, that it's founded on an event, an event that actually happened, an event that changed the world, an event that changed my life, an event that this morning, I'm hoping, will change your life as well. See, the resurrection is where it all happens. The resurrection is what it all hinges on. Nothing but the resurrection helps us understand and helps us to explain this extraordinary courage that Peter and John and the other apostles had when they were confronted and faced with the same accusers, with the same men who, uh, who accused Jesus and crucified him. They came face to face with these accusers in a story in the book of Acts. And Luke tells us this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They begin to question him. Whose name are you preaching in? It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. I mean, they're face to face with the very people that have the right and the power to kill them and crucify them, that have the right to scourge them and beat them like they did Jesus. Whose name are you preaching in? The name of Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Now, don't miss this. The resurrection was central in the early early Christians' message, and it's central in our message. And decades later, just a few weeks later, when Peter, when John were confronted with these accusers, it came back to the resurrection even then. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name. We sang about that this morning. That name of Jesus under heaven, given to mankind by which we must be saved. And here's the thing I don't want you to miss. No one was this bold. No one was bold enough to look into the face of their executioner and say, it's your fault, but God loves you. It's your fault, but God made a way for you. You see, at this point in stories, this is where men, and sometimes even women, but mostly men, they kind of drop to their knees and they begin to beg for mercy. Don't kill me. Don't do this. But Peter and John looked in the face of their accusers and said, no, it was you. You see, that's courage. That's boldness. And that's boldness because of what actually happened. That they believed without a shadow of a doubt that there was a resurrection and they would stake their life on it. And then when the men saw this, when their accusers saw this, they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that these were kind of unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Not a dead Jesus. Not a dead body in a tomb. But a risen Jesus. Because that is the only thing that would give these ordinary men that kind of courage. And when they were warned to no longer speak in the name of Jesus again, they said this, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help. We cannot stop. No matter what you do, 
it won't put out the fire. It won't extinguish what I have to say. You could, prison, you could lock me up in prison. You could come at me with, with uh, um, the threat of death. It will not stop what I have to say. Speaking about what we've believed, about what somebody told us, about some weird oral story, like transmission that had passed on for generations. No, no, no. About what we'd seen and about what we have heard. About what we've seen and about what we were heard. Because these were the eyewitnesses to the greatest event that ever happened in all of history. That there was a man who would come, who would live for you, who would die a death, but that death wouldn't stop him. And he'd come back to life and he'd be seen again. You see, you can't scare men and women who aren't afraid of death. Because to them it's just sleep. You can't scare men and women who've looked in the, the face, in the eyes of the resurrection and the life. They don't scare easily. These men and these women looked in the face of their Savior, and they knew there was more to life than this life. And this event that we call the resurrection was written about in this creed that Christ died for our sins and was buried, and he rose from the dead and was seen. You see, for those of you who believe but sometimes wonder like I have, I want you to know that your faith is solid. I want you to know that there is evidence to believe what we believe. That there is evidence to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that he, he did what he claimed he would do. And for those of you who wonder, how could anyone still believe this? Now you know. And my hope for you, my invitation for you this morning is, is maybe, maybe through this, it answers some of your questions, some of your doubts, and maybe you want to believe as well. And for those of you who've wondered, can I ever believe again? My invitation for you today is yes. You can believe because there is overwhelming evidence to prove that Jesus died for your sins and was buried and he rose again and was seen. You can believe. There is overwhelming evidence to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he would do what he claimed to do. We're going to close with the song and then I'll come back up and pray. It's a song that you're probably familiar with. We've sung the song for a while now. <clears throat> it's an incredibly powerful song, especially around the time of Easter. But, but the opening line in this song, it just kind of, kind of personalizes all this for us. I'm going to uh, quote the words for you. It says this, Alone in my sorrows and dead in my sin. That means that you're in a position where you can do nothing about. You can't get out. You can't, like, you can't overcome your regrets. You can't overcome your mistakes. That pain you feel, that little twinge you feel when you're, around, when you're around maybe church or other people, there's nothing you can do to overcome that. Alone in my sorrows and dead in my sin, lost without hope, no place to begin. Your love made a way to let mercy come in. That means that God saw you where you are, that God saw what you were doing, and that he chose to love you anyway. That regardless of your pain, regardless of your regret, regardless of what you've done, regardless of maybe your doubts, he said, I love you anyway. And not only that, but I'm going to make a way for you to overcome. I'm going to make a way for you to overcome your pain and your regret and your doubt and your sin. When death was arrested and my life began, when death was arrested, when Jesus died, for your sins on the cross and was buried. 
and when he was rose again and was seen.